Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Tso, and Pastor Vim, and Christelle. Thank you guys for that wonderful time of worship and announcements and all these good things that we do here. I'm going to try and come a bit closer. All right, that's great. Just so you know, we're recording these, and so um, the Go Church Josie website is alive and active, okay? So let's just get into the habit of um, going there. There's a lot of good information, a lot of good stuff that's available. Amen. All right. I'm going to be with you here for the next two weeks, the next two Sundays. I'll be with you. Um, after that, my wife is also going to come through. Right now, she's preaching. She's finishing off her series these next two Sundays in Centurion, her series on praying with purpose, where she's dealing with how do you pray for different areas. So um, today, she's looking at how do you pray for health, science, and technology, that domain, and also how do you pray for business. And I think it's so, so powerful. Please just uh, tap into that um, via the website. And also... Um, Tap into some of the prayer strategies that Pastor Vim does. Okay, when we preach messages, she actually crafts. Uh, we give her the notes beforehand and she crafts prayer strategies so we can actually pray into some of these uh, messages. Amen. Amen. Well, today I want to share with you a powerful message entitled Proclaiming Christ in Society. I think it's so awesome when a church is still young, when a church is being birthed like this, because this is really where, uh, for those of us who preach, we can actually create um, and enforce a strong DNA. Amen. It's, it's so important when you birth a church to preserve the culture, because what's going to happen is we're going to have all sorts of people coming, and you'll see sometimes God uses, uses this as an incubation time to create culture. Then people come. But it's important that we are clear about what our philosophy is and what we believe and why and what we don't believe and why. Amen? Amen. I want to encourage you when it comes to inviting people. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, we haven't grown as quick as we want to grow and so on. We've planted lots of churches and a lot of them have started with just 10 people. The church in Centurion, it was just about 10 or 11 of us that were sent out and started the church. Now it's a couple of hundred people who are coming, right? And that's how these things start. But it's each one reach one. Amen? And I want to also encourage you, it's the, I don't know if you've heard of the law of the seven touches when it comes to assimilation. Some of you have invited people and then you stop inviting them because they said they were going to come and then they don't come and then you give up. You know that a lot of people actually need seven touches before they actually end up coming to church. Okay? So don't just see your evangelism as, okay, this person didn't know God now they know God and are the super-duper evangelist, okay? Very often you find someone starts off as an atheist, and then you touch them. Then they start thinking like, maybe there is a God out there. Then you touch them. Oh, maybe church and these Christian folk aren't that bad. Then you touch them. Do you see that? And then they come to a place of salvation, right? You find that today, the way we reach people is not the same as how we reach them in the 50s. In the 50s, people would have discussions with you and they wanted to know, is this the truth? Can I believe this? Oh, yes, I can believe it. And then they become Christians. Today, in this postmodern era, people are getting saved a bit differently. People want to belong first, right? 
And after a while, and they've been coming to church and so on, then you see this guy like raising his hand in the altar call. And you're like, huh? But this guy's been here for three months. I thought he was already saved, right? Because they're saying, can I belong? Can I make friends here? So we want to show people that, you know what? We're friendly people. They can make friends here. We're not weirdos, all right? And then as, as that happens, they start saying, I love the way Martin loves Malope, right? There's something about how these guys connect. Please, can you help me in my marriage? What do you guys believe about marriage? What do you believe about God? I want to believe whatever you believe. That's what happens. Amen. So, Father, I pray that today your word will be so strong and it will sink deep into our inner persons. I pray, Father God, that revelation will be imparted. And I thank you, God, that this is not going to be information, but it will be revelation. I thank you, God, that you're transforming us and that there's heart change taking place. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen. So I'm talking today about proclaiming Christ in society. Now, very often when we talk about proclaiming, a lot of times we can encourage people to evangelize. We can encourage people to proclaim Christ in the marketplace but they proclaim the wrong stuff. So I want to use as a foundation scripture, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. Paul says to them, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he's speaking to the church in Galatia and he's saying, I'm really concerned that you guys are moving away from the gospel but I find it interesting because for him, turning away from the gospel is synonymous with deserting Christ. And you see that Paul was so protective about what was preached. Paul was so protective about the gospel. And so as we talk about proclaiming Christ this morning, let's be very clear about what we're proclaiming. Amen? Amen. You see, it's crucial that we never move away from a Christocentric gospel. Christ has to be the center of every single thing we do as we build in this particular work. And then he goes on to say, which is really no gospel at all. So we can't say we're preaching the gospel if Christ isn't the center of it. And then he goes on to say, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you. Let them be under God's curse. That's how serious this is. And the sad thing is today, a lot of people are preaching works. Today, a lot of people are preaching just a motivational talk. If you think it, you can become it. Just do this and this and this and these principles, and then, oh, your, wife, your life will be so successful. But we see here that we have to be Christocentric in whatever we preach. Amen. Amen. Galatians 3 verse 1, he goes on to call them foolish. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Do you know what's being said here? For me to live is Christ. He goes on to say that later on. For me to live is Christ. That's how central Christ was to Paul the Apostle. I want to encourage you, every single thing that we do when we're proclaiming, let's make sure that it's centered on what Jesus did on the cross. You see, what is the gospel? Well, it's the fact that man is depraved 
In other words, man apart from God is nothing. I am nothing. You are nothing. Man is depraved. There's nothing I can do in my own strength that will get me saved. Simple as that, finishing claw, right? That's the first aspect. The second aspect is there's only one name that has been given in heaven, and earth, wherever, the whole entire universe by which man can be saved. And that name is the name Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? That's what scriptures tell us. Now, this is crucial because today a lot of people are universalists. A lot of people today believe in what we call ultimate reconciliation. What is ultimate reconciliation? It's this belief that, you know what, it doesn't matter. Oh, you don't believe in Christ. Oh, you were raised in a Muslim family. Oh, you were in this environment, right? Don't worry about it. It's okay. Jesus is so loving. He'll just make a plan so that you get saved, even if you didn't accept Jesus, all right? That's what's called ultimate reconciliation. That doesn't matter how people have lived their lives, somehow they will just all get saved. Now, we know that's not scriptural. We know that's not biblical, okay? So there's only one name by which man has been given for salvation, and that is the name Jesus Christ. And then what happens is if we accept him as Lord, okay? The Bible tells us that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, all right? That is the gospel. It means that when you do that, what happens is God, by his spirit, comes and regenerates your spirit. He comes and recreates your spirit so that you are now connected with God and you've got the Zoe, the God kind of life, operating in you. That's the gospel. And that's good news, isn't it? Amen. That's good news. Now, why am I saying this? You might say, but Paul, this is basic. Paul, I know this. Fact of the matter is this isn't what a lot of people are preaching today. You can go to churches today and you just hear motivational talk. I do lots of motivational talks for organizations. I'm not against that, okay? But the fact of the matter is we can't motivate people into the kingdom. The fact of the matter is if we are not Christocentric, if we're not preaching the true gospel, the Bible here says it's no gospel at all. And in actual fact, it, Paul says, who has bewitched you? Because the church in Galatia was going into the flesh, they were looking for laws to get, to get saved by. And he says, who has bewitched you? Now, we don't use that language today, do we? If someone goes into false doctrine, you don't hear people saying, oh, they've been bewitched. But the honest truth is they have been. The Bible speaks of doctrines of devils, doctrines of demons that are so enticing. That's why sometimes you have these books that are bestsellers. You know, people will be like, oh, have you read such and such a book? And have you read such and such a book? And literally the moment they start reading it, they can't let it go. Why? They're demonically inspired ideas. It's the same with songs. There are a lot of songs that have got these catchphrases. And if you're not careful, especially those of you who are mus musical, what happens? You go into that supermarket and you come out singing that song. Very often there have been covenants of darkness that the, the songwriter has made with spirits of darkness Right? And the lyrics were demonically inspired. You speak to some of these songwriters and you ask them. And you say, how did you come up with that song? And you hear them saying, oh, I was under the influence of drugs. How many of you know that very often when you're under the, the drug, drug influence, you open yourself up to demons? Amen. All right? Sometimes they will actually say to you, it just came to me. It's like literally it was like electric writing. You know that electric writing where they, they're not in control of it. It's demonically inspired. In the same way today, they're de demonically inspired doctrines. 
that have crept into the church, that are being preached from the pulpit, okay? People have been bewitched. Whatever we do as we build in this ministry, let's make sure we stay true to the gospel. Can I hear an amen? amen. Galatians 5 verse 4, it says, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So it is possible for people who are Christians, Bible-believing Christians like these guys had been, it is possible for them to fall away from grace because they're now looking for a righteousness that comes from the law. So now that I've got that as a foundation, that you cannot save yourself, now that we've established this, the key thing we're going to cover today is, this, is six mind shifts when it comes to proclaiming Christ. What are six things that need to actually take place, six shifts, where we can be effective in proclaiming Christ in society? Okay? I've got about 12 in total, and I might do the other six uh, next week, but let's see how we, how we go. I want to just give you six. The first thing that happens when you're a true proclaimer of the gospel, there's a shift in your citizenship. There's a shift in your citizenship. You see, when you have a revelation that you're a citizen of heaven, there's power in the message that you proclaim. There's a shift. Let's go deeper into this. Let me, let me just say, this word proclaim, in the Greek it's the word caruso, and it's a very powerful word. It means being a herald. You know back in the day, do you remember the Boston Tea Party? Do you remember how in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, when you, when you wanted a message to be delivered very quickly, a message maybe from the king or the president to a town, you'd have a guy who'd get onto a horse. He was known as the town crier. And he would literally call people to a meeting, right? Where, where the citizens of the particular city or nation would gather together and then certain laws would be proclaimed and certain things would be spoken of. That person was known as a herald. And that word in scripture, herald, what that, what that herald does is they herald a message, okay? They're a crier, they proclaim a message. And it's usually a message that is proclaimed with authority. Like the king has said from now onwards. So it's a message that is proclaimed with authority. And it's a message that is proclaimed with gravity. So when we talk about pro proclaiming Christ, and you see this term used throughout the New Testament, proclaim the gospel, proclaim. It's not suggesting the gospel. It's proclaiming it. Okay? It's not saying, would you like to try Jesus? It's proclaiming it. It's, it's weighty. And every single believer has been called to proclaim Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay? It's to publish something that must be listened to and obeyed. It's to publish something that must be listened to and obeyed. All right? So in Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven. This is such a powerful revelation. Don't go out and try to do evangelism without having this revelation that your citizenship is in heaven. Let's go deeper. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, he has, if you look at the context here, 
He says, I'm weeping because some of you, your God is your stomach. Some of you are so much in the flesh. You haven't got this revelation that our citizenship is in heaven. Let me explain something about that. How important is citizenship to you? We've got, got Ryan over there. He's American. He's married to a South African. All right? We've had interesting conversations just about the concept of citizenship. How many of you know that if someone becomes an American citizen, there are a lot of advantages to that? There are a lot of advantages. But you know, it's funny the way the government does it, like this, this government here, the, our government. It's almost like here, there are degrees of citizenship. Have you noticed that? Right? I think of someone... Um, good friends of ours, the Mzembes, okay? They've become citizens of South Africa by naturalization. You know, when you've been here for some time, you, become a, you can apply for citizenship. So their daughter applied for certain jobs. Praise God, she's now got a job. She's graduated as a, um, as a lawyer, right? She's a, so she was looking for a legal job. And she said to me, Paul, you know what? I got, I, I tried to apply for such and such a job in this particular organization. And I was informed that it's only for South African citizens. But then she said, well, I'm now a citizen. And then she was informed further, no, 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 no. It's only if you became a citizen, I think, before 1994. You get what I'm saying? So in a lot of countries, it's not you're either a citizen or you're not. Right? We see it happening a lot of times. First you come into a nation and you think, cool, I've now got my work permit. Then you get a job. Then afterwards, you try and apply for another one. No, 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 we're only getting people with a permanent resident. Okay, I've now got my perm res. No, 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 no. We, it, you have to be a citizen. Then you get your citizenship. No, 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 no. You have to have become a citizen before 94. Are you seeing where I'm going? That's how countries work. But the kingdom of God is not like that. You're either a citizen or not a citizen. Isn't that powerful? You're either a citizen of the kingdom of God, a, a heavenly citizen, or you are not. There are no degrees of citizenship. I want to drill this further. In many nations, you could be a citizen, but you didn't have the full benefits of citizenship. If you look at the Roman Empire, there was this big thing of, I'm a Roman citizen. You know, people like Paul the Apostle, he was a Roman citizen. But you know that women at that time in the Roman citizen, uh, who were Roman citizens, they didn't have the full benefits. They didn't have the full benefits of voting freely, being able to just sit and make certain decisions and so on. They didn't. The same goes for our countries, modern day, modern society. You'd think we're barbaric or something, but it's true. In America, women could only vote uh, in 1920. In South Africa, women could only vote in 1933 elections. There's a law that was made in 1930 to say women can vote. Let's not even talk about black folk. Because that was just white women at that stage. All right? But the point I'm making is, in the nations of the world, citizenship is dodgy. Citizenship tends to have all sorts of limitations. But I'm telling you right now, when you're a citizen of the kingdom, there are no limitations. It's not like God comes and says, but you only became a Christian last year, so you can't claim that promise. Guys, this is good news. And my question to you is, are you fully aware of the benefits of your citizenship in heaven? Are you fully aware of it? 
I've got a friend, uh, we all know, uh, Lysias, and he works for the United Nations, and he's based out in Geneva in Switzerland. And the nature of his arrangement there is what's called a third country national. If you're familiar with, with UN and how they operate and so on, there are a lot of benefits when you're a third country national. What that basically means is you're not a US citizen, but you're, and you're a foreign national working in a, in a particular country. Okay, so they call it a third country national. But you're treated pretty much like a US citizen, and you've literally got a whole lot of benefits accordingly. So we like to have those benefits. Sad thing for me is a lot of people are very aware of the benefits of their citizenship at a national level, but they're not fully aware of their benefits of their citizenship in terms of their he the heavenly kingdom. If I went around and I said, how many promises are you claiming this week? How many rights do you have as a believer? How many of you will be able to reel them off, reel them off, reel them off? How many of you believe that healing is in the covenant? You see, some people don't. I mean, you guys are brilliant at it because my kids, when they met, when they met your, your Ryan, one of the things he said is, yeah, because then I'll, and I'll turn seven and then I'll be able to go to that school. Now become a Christian and I'll be able to heal people. <laughs> and, it was, and we were having lunch and they were, our kids were repeating what your Ryan had said. And my wife and I looked at each other and I thought, yeah, okay, this guy is being groomed. He's being groomed. You're right? But the point I'm making is healing is in the covenant. It's your right. Let me give you another example. How many of you have watched Taken 2? How many of you like Taken with Liam Nielsen? Okay, really, really great. Uh, most of us in this room will like Taken. But what I find interesting is, do you remember the scene in Istanbul? And do you remember he was with his daughter? And what were they trying to do? They were trying to get to the U.S. Embassy. And they had a bit of an adventure getting there, but in the end they got there. And they knew that once they're in that embassy, they were safe. Even though they were positioned where? In Istanbul. Guys, it's the same with us as believers. Jesus said, although you are not of the world, you are in the world. You're in the world, but you're not of it. He's using the language of citizenship in heaven. I'm telling you right now, because you're a believer, you're in a place of immunity. Whatever bullets were being fired at Liam Nielsen, what's his name in, in Taken? You, some of you remember those details, okay? Whatever bullets were being fired at him and his daughter, that stopped when they were in the U.S. Embassy. Some of you are accepting all sorts of bullets and just saying, because I'm human. I don't like it when Christians say that. Yeah, because I'm human too, you know. You know what they say about soccer players, you know, like if Lionel Messi misses the ball, what, is the, what does the commentator say? You know, at least we see that he's human too. But as a believer, yes, you are human, but guess what's happening? You have the very life of God at oper in operation within you. And you see, when you, when you preach the gospel, when you proclaim Christ, stemming from that revelation that you're a heavenly citizen, everything changes. People start saying, how come the stuff that usually affects all of us is not affecting you or your household? How come? How come where everyone is stressed in the workplace, you are not stressed? You're basically saying, I'm in a place of immunity. I'm in the world, so you can see me in the flesh, but I'm not of the world. I don't know if you're catching this this morning because this is very powerful. If you look, if, if you look at an ambassador... You know that there's an ambassadorial calling we have because we're not just from heaven. 
We've also got an assignment. That's what ambassadors do. They've got an assignment. We've got a diplomatic assignment. Therefore, we have diplomatic immunity. We have diplomatic immunity. Do you know that you cannot arrest an ambassador? If the ambassador from the United States or whatever country it is, Zambian ambassador to South Africa, if he starts doing dodgy things, do you know the only thing that can happen? We can just expel them, them, right? We can just say, please, you're not welcome in our country. If they do dodgy stuff. We cannot arrest ambassadors unless diplomatic immunity has been wavered for whatever reason. We are ambassadors on earth. We have an ambassadorial anointing. And the mistake we've made is we've said to guys, go, reach the lost, reach them. But we haven't given them a revelation of the authority that they carry because they're from a different kingdom. You know, this was so significant when Paul the Apostle said, our citizenship is in heaven. Do you know why it was so significant? Because he was a Roman citizen and there were so many advantages of being a Roman citizen. And in fact, in fact, while he was in Philippi, he was actually using those advantages. Remember, he had been put in prison. They had flogged him. And he basically, and the, the guy said, you know what? You can actually be released. You guys can go now. We're releasing you. And he basically said, uh-uh, nara, no ways. I'm a Roman citizen and you guys have flogged me publicly and now you want to release us silently. Uh-uh, I'm bringing you to book because I'm a Roman citizen. He was fully aware of his rights as a Roman citizen. But despite all those benefits, despite all those benefits, what does he say? He says, our citizenship is in heaven. He was more conscious of his primary citizenship in heaven than his Roman citizenship. Isn't that powerful? Some people are more conscious of their national citizenship than their heavenly citizenship. You know, the people in Philippi, they prided themselves in being Roman citizens. They prided themselves in that. This was a strong Gentile community. That's why you'll notice in the letter to the Philippians, he doesn't actually quote the Old Testament. They weren't familiar with it, all right? Um, it was an area that, was, that had a lot of guys, sort of your military officials, um, who had retired, and they were given land there in that particular area. It was named after Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. Um, it was a very important city of Macedonia on the highway to Rome. It was also where Lydia was converted. There were so many advantages in terms of being a Roman citizen in Philippi. And yet he said, guys, our citizenship is in heaven. So important. The second shift. When you become a believer, when you become a believer, there's a shift in your assignment. I want to ask you a question. When you became a Christian, did you have a revelation that there's a shift in your assignment? The things you used to prioritize, you don't prioritize anymore. The way you seek God's face to say, Lord, what should I be focused on this year? It's different now because you're a believer. How many of you know that you're called to a specific place and to specific people? And when you function within that assignment, you're fruitful. Amen? Amen. We're called to plant churches. There's some people who are called to just pastor one church all their lives. 
We're called to plant churches. That's why we know like we know like we know when we go into different regions, different communities, things will explode. Why? We're doing what we're graced to do. Amen? Amen. And there's no question, no doubt about it. My question to you is, are you aware of the shift in assignment? When you function according to your assignment, there's fruit. Let's go a bit deep into this. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 7. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. This is so powerful. Sometimes when we don't go into a region and we feel there's a block there, we just start binding the enemy, don't we? We start rebuking all sorts of spirits. Sometimes when we want to go into an organization and be fruitful there and the door closes, we sometimes assume it's the enemy. But here it specifically says something very powerful. It says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit. From doing what? From smoking marijuana? No. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word. That's a good thing. There are times when you want to do a good thing somewhere. And you make assumptions, but the Holy Spirit is the one that sometimes can keep you from doing it. In verse 7 it says, When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. This is so powerful. You see, folks, what's happening today is a lot of people are going into territories and regions that the Spirit of Jesus hasn't allowed them to go into. You see here, Paul and his companions could have forced matters and gone into these regions and then not experienced fruit. But here we see in scripture that the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, how did they know it was the spirit of Jesus? They were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 13, these guys had been sent out from the church at Antioch. And it says, the spirit of the Lord said, send out for me, send out Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to. Remember that in Acts chapter 13. So they were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When we proclaim Christ and we want to proclaim Christ with lots of fruit, we must go where the Spirit of Jesus leads us. And we must remain within those borders. Amen? Amen. And in order to do that, we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Because if we do things based on presumption, we will waste time. And this is the strategy of the enemy, by the way. The devil knows that the people in this room are radical for Jesus. The devil knows that we will speak to the lost. The devil knows that we're not about to give up our faith. He knows that. So do you know what he tends to do? He wants to get you burnt out, doing things that will frustrate you, doing things that will wound you, so that you become disillusioned. Very often that's his strategy. If, Chris, if he can't make you stop doing what you're supposed to do, he'll make you overdo it or do it in the wrong place. The devil doesn't mind you doing good stuff in the wrong place. Amen? Yeah. He doesn't mind. And you'll go around and you'll think you're preaching and so on and you're doing this, doing that, and then you get wounded at an emotional level and you stop doing what he's assigned you to do, what God has assigned you to do. Now, what is so powerful about this is look what happens in Acts chapter 16, verse 9. It's not like Paul just stops and says, oh, Jesus hasn't allowed us to do this, and then he just sits. That's what a lot of Christians do. Hey, well, the Lord, Lord hasn't said we must go there. The Lord's closed that door. 
and they just sit. But look what happens in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Very often you only have these types of visions when you've obeyed the leading of the Spirit. You only have these types of visions where you aren't trying to do a whole lot of stuff in the flesh. See, a lot of people have not made room to hear Jesus and to effectively proclaim Christ because they're busy running around in the flesh doing their own thing. No room to hear Jesus. But these guys were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? This man of Macedonia then says, please come and help us. And Paul knew what that meant. He knew it means, let's go and preach the gospel. Let's go and proclaim Christ. So it says, during the night, he had this vision. What happens in verse 10? After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So the obedience was immediate. The obedience was, was immediate. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Those of you kids, you know what I'm talking about. You can tell your child, do this, do this, do that. And he says, no, but I did end up doing it. Yes, but 45 minutes later, is that good enough? No, it's not. You don't want your kids to be a Jonah. You know how Jonah was quite stubborn? You know, and God has to ask him like three times before he actually, you know, gets on with the program. And sometimes we raise kids who become like Jonah's, where we're like, I'm so glad you obeyed me, son. But it took him 45 minutes. But look what happens to Paul. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. You're going to have Pauls around you, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, who will also have visions. And it says here, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they didn't just have a vision and they went. They actually tested it. They actually judged it. They actually looked and they thought, and then they concluded that God is sending us out. There was a shift in assignment. Are you conscious of the assignment that Jesus has given you? And are you obeying that assignment? Maybe going to these other places in the natural looked glamorous, looked obvious, until they had the vision of the man from Macedonia. Are you led by your flesh or are you led by the spirit of Jesus? So if you've been called to proclaim Christ, what does that look like? What does that look like for you? Paul knew what he was called to. What does it look like for you? I realize that there are lots of opportunities we have. There's someone who I've coached, a uh, corporate leader, and this person is Muslim. They don't seem to be that staunch. I mean, they eat, you know, the food you're supposed to eat and so on, but they don't, they're not dressed in the garb, etc. But what I find interesting is we were having lunch. There was a group of us, um, it was the lunch break in a workshop I was doing for them a few days ago. And she said, you know what, guys, I went on a particular pilgrimage and I didn't realize I was so religious. I would step out forward and just go and do all the prayers. Then my family would feel guilty that I wasn't doing it, that they weren't doing it. But at a certain point in the conversation, she says, I find religion so fascinating. I actually want to study some of the world religions. 
That's such an opportunity. Because now I can literally go and give a material and say, you said you want to study all the world religions. Then I can send to some Ravi Zacharias powerful stuff, you know, Jesus amongst other gods, etc. That's an opportunity. Amen? So my question to you is, are you sensitive to the doors that God is opening for you in order to preach the gospel? Because it's not going to look the same. For some of you, you're strong when it comes to invitational evangelism. You're good at inviting people to meetings. For some of you, you're very strong counselors. And in the context of counseling people, they come to you because you're brilliant and they want their wounds healed and so on. But in that context, you reach them with the gospel. You proclaim Christ. After we did that TV show and things exploded and so on, I get so many requests for, um, for marriage counseling. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, Paul, the thing I've given you as a business is your leadership coaching. But when it comes to the marriage coaching, I've given that to you, yes, but I've given it to you to activate revival in people. And it's amazing. When I meet with couples, sometimes it's three hours, sometimes it's four hours. The thing they then say to me, you'll find someone saying, but we need to work on our relationship with God. I think we've come to the point where we are because our relationship with God is lacking. We, where's your church? Are you hearing me? That's my opportunity to proclaim Christ. Okay? I remember uh, we were on holiday and I had to get a haircut and I went to some town, I've even forgotten its name, a deep Zulu type of name and so on, deep in the Drakensberg there. And I'm looking and I'm saying, where can I have a haircut? Where can I have a haircut? And I end up going and I meet these two guys and they see my watch and it's a garment and they say, oh, do you run? And I say, you know, I try and do my little thing, my little contribution and so on. And these guys are like machines. You know, the kind of guys who literally will do um, a 10Ks like in 30 minutes, 31 minutes type of thing. And I'm hearing these times and so on. But in the process, I begin to share the gospel with them. They give, you know, they pray the sinner's prayer, give their hearts to the Lord, etc. But they can't run away from me because they're shaving my head. They're not going to just leave my head halfway and so on, Right. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? There's so many opportunities for proclaiming Christ and we have to be sensitive and do it. And very often in the modern era, you'll proclaim Christ in the context of your strength, in the context in which God has wired you. How do you know how God has wired you? I'm going to ask you some questions. What do people ask you for advice? They come to you for advice for that particular thing. What is that? Just note it down, whatever that thing is. What is that thing for you? Is it health issues? See, because they already look up to you in that area. Sometimes when I'm doing corporate coaching, I sit down and, I, and pe the people respect me so much in the area of leadership. But do you know what the interesting thing is? If I were to tell them what I believe spiritually, they'll also buy into it. Are you hearing me this morning? Amen. You see, very often God wires you in a particular way because that's the door opener for you. Your talent very often will open doors for your calling. Are you hearing me this morning? Your talent very often will open doors for your calling. So someone can be good vocally in terms of singing. That's a talent, isn't it? It might not be their calling. It might be a door opener for their calling. Because the person gets invited to functions. Can you sing for us at this wedding? Can you sing for us here? 
And then when you ask them more than two questions deep and you say, what are you called to? And they'll say, God has called me to bring about restoration, deliverance, and discipleship to the next generation. Oh, that's the calling. The music was the talent that opened doors for it. Amen? And a lot of people don't distinguish between their calling and their, and their talent. One of my books is called Maximizing Your Gifts and Callings, and I distinguish between that. So important. All right? So what do people ask you for advice? What compliments do you receive the most? Compliments that you receive the most. See, if I told you, what you if I said to you, what are you good at? You might be singing from your own hymn sheet or believing your own press. But if I ask you this way, if I say, what compliments do you receive the most? What do people say? Even if it's your hairstyles. Maybe one of those people is always changing hairstyles and so on. Maybe you know how to take stuff that's plain looking and make it beautiful. And that same gift you use when you edit people's work. Right? It's the same gift you use when you go into a building or a house and you can like, let's spruce this up. Let's do this. Okay? So what compliments do you receive the most? Next question I want to ask you. This will help you to know what your assignment is. Eh? What comes to you easily without much training? Comes to you easily without much training. Other people have to really work hard to do the thing. Another question is, People come to you and they say, thanks for that hard work you did. Thanks for the sacrifice. It was just amazing. But you know you just winged it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Thank you for all, all that sacrifice. Oh, you really gave something that cost you a lot. Oh. Okay? But meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know you just winged it. And it felt so easy for you because you anointed to do it. That's one of the ways you know, uh, in terms of just understanding the anointing on your life, by the way. It's the stuff that comes easily to you. And you feel energized when you're doing it. And sometimes we sing our own praises and we're like, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. No. God's grace and anointing makes stuff easy. And we can't boast about it. If I was to wake you up at 2 a.m., I'd phone you and I'd say, can you do this for me? What would you be willing to do at 2 a.m.? without complaining or grumbling. What's that thing? For some of you, it's praying. You don't mind waking up in the middle of the night and just praying. Pastor Vim. <laughs> For some of you, it's counseling people. Some of us will be like, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Okay, how long have you had this issue? Oh, okay, the last three weeks. Now you're phoning me at 2 a.m. Surely it could wait until 6 a.m. You've, you've managed to survive, like, you know, all this time. All right? Right? But for some of you who are passionate about counseling, you're like, oh, just bring them to me, Pastor, bring them. There are people like that in our church. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. All right? There are people like that. What do you get so absorbed doing that you forget to eat? You just get so absorbed and you lose track of time. The other day, my wife was in prayer and she was interceding for certain people. And then afterwards, she just said to me, sure, I lost track of time. I think this must be my calling. I said, yeah, my love, you're a watchman. That's why. You lost track of time. You know? And then we tease each other because sometimes it happens even at church. You know, like when we're doing baby dedications and things like that. And I'm like, okay, my love, can you just please pray for these people and so on? Okay, but just remember, it's a church service, hey? So, like, there's a time thing. Right? Because that's what happens with intercessors. They'll just flow. Right? 
What can you do that requires minimal effort on your part, but the results are phenomenal? Those are your high leverage activities. Minimal effort on your part, but the result is massive. What's that for you? So you've written down some things, and so here's my question. How can you proclaim Christ in that context while doing those things? Maybe for some of you it's hospitality. And you see in your mind you think preaching and healing, those are the spiritual things. And you've kind of got this thing where you've divided the sacred over there and the secular over there. But God is interested in all of life. And if God can use your good baking skills for you to proclaim Christ through that, then so be it. If God can use your great counseling skills for you to proclaim Christ through that, then so be it. But sometimes we've got this pseudo-spiritual thing in the church where we think Christ can only be proclaimed when I'm preaching the gospel from the pulpit and spitting on people and everyone around me falling down and it has to be in a prayer meeting. No. Proclaim Christ wherever you are. Amen? Amen. Let, me, let me give you an example. Um, the people who print my books, okay, Ramata, what is interesting is they, um, they're Christians, and the one lady basically, when they started printing my books, they said, Paul, we're not just seeing books here. We're also seeing games. And I took that word. And that's where all my corporate games came, all those cards, etc. When I use those cards, I mean, we've got so many. If you go into marriagecoach.co.za, you can see all of them there. I'm using those cards in corporate settings. That anointing is so thick, so strong when people are using those particular cards. I've tried to slow some of the stuff down where I'm like, okay, I'm sure this is enough card games. This is enough now. And literally, as, as I try and slow it down, ideas just come into my inner person. What's that for you? What's that for you? Today, there are people who have dreams from heaven, supernatural dreams from heaven, and they've become millionaires as a result of dreaming with God. I don't know about you, but I want to build on heavenly assignments, not on ideas from man. Amen? Amen. I want to take time to seek God's face because that's where I'll be fruitful and that's where I can be effective in proclaiming Christ. Even as we come up with evangelistic strategies for this local church, let's be like Paul Yongicho, David Yongicho. I pray and I obey. Listening prayer, where we're hearing from heaven. That's where the fruit is. The third shift when you're proclaiming Christ, there is a shift in association. There's a shift in association. In other words, we're not hanging out with the same crowd that we hung out with before we were saved. Now let's go a little bit deep into this because I'm not saying you mustn't hang out with non-Christians because we need to spend time with unsaved people in order to reach them. Amen. Amen. Right? But what I'm saying is the fact that you are now this citizen from heaven, who you associate with, who you spend time with, is crucial. It has to be spirit-led. What I find interesting is a lot of Christians will say, yeah, but did you see Jesus? He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the tax collectors. And I say, but Jesus had his primary crew. 
Jesus had the guys he literally was with all the time when he would say, come follow me, come see where I'm staying. And then in that context of deep community, and I'm going to preach a message on that in a number of weeks, deeper community, in that context of deep community, they went out and they influenced the lost. I want to ask you that question. Who's your primary community? Look at this in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 to 15. And as I read this to you, answer the question, am I spending a few hours with people that I should only be spending a few minutes with? And the converse is true. Am I spending a few minutes with certain people I should actually be spending a few hours with? Are there certain people I only spend a few minutes with on Sunday at church, but I should actually be doing life deeply with them? Converse is true. Are there certain people where I'm spending a few hours with them, but I should actually be cutting down? They shouldn't be my friends, they should be my acquaintances. Okay? Acts chapter 16, 13 to 15. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. Where we expected to find a place of prayer, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Isn't that wonderful? They spoke to women. I mean, these are Jewish guys, Jewish background and so on. You didn't just go up and just speak to someone of the opposite sex. So the gospel changed a number of things, didn't it? Right? It broke down those barriers. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So she was a businesswoman. She was a worshiper of God. There are a lot of people who are worshippers of God, but they're not yet saved. You know what I'm talking about. There's someone, for example, I don't know whether the person is saved. They're from a Catholic background. They're a program manager in one of the programs I was teaching on this week. And I said to this person, what's your background spiritually? Because there was the joy she was carrying. And we started talking. And she said to me, you know what, Paul? Um, I'm from a Catholic background, but I've never attended any other church. This is an adult. I've never attended any other church. And I find that, you know, when the kneeling down, getting up and all those things, sometimes it takes away from the personal relationship I'm trying to have with God. I said, here's my material. I said, here's a book. I blessed it with my book, Read Dreaming. I said, read it. I said, there's something on you. God wants to use you. There's something you carry. She was so blown away. She was like, oh, oh, oh. You can, be, you can have someone who's a worshiper of God, but they're not necessarily born again yet. They acknowledge and believe in God. They're a good person, as it were, good in inverted commas. We need to reach those people, amen? We need to reach those people. We need to awaken something in them. And I believe God is going to use you to do that. So it says she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, so she now gets saved, right? She invited us to her home. Would she have done that prior to this? Not necessarily. But there was a shift in association. Can you see that? She then says, if you guys consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We want to be in a place where this community becomes so attractive. We want to be in a place where we're not just singing Gumbaya in church. And then we say, we are so diverse. We love each other, people from different backgrounds. Key question, 
Who do you invite home for tea afterwards? Are you hearing me this morning? And we have to move away from the materialism of Johannesburg, where we're so caught up in this whole thing of, but my house, but maybe when I get my new sofas, then I'll invite church folk. People have done that to me, where I want to visit them, and they're so self-conscious, they're like, ah, pastor, when the new sofas arrive, then we'll do it. I don't care about the sofas, I care about you, amen? Because what happens is, you'll go to Ishen Rufaro's house, and you'll see the setup there, and then you think that's the standard, and then you feel like, but I can't invite people to my house because it's not like Ishen Rufaro's, or because it's not like Sean and Sunera's. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay? There's certain people who never invite, would never invite me to their homes. Uh, you know, in the centurion days, because like, no, 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 when we get this, no, 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 when our kitchen is bigger, I don't care how big your kitchen is. Amen? What are the things that block us from deeper community? Let's get over those barriers. Amen? Let's get over them. Right? So there was a shift here, and she invited them over. She says, come and stay at my house if you consider me to be a believer. My question to you is, how do you relate to people of the same faith as you. You know, Paul says elsewhere, he says, guys, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. My wife was giving away a lot of her things recently, right? And she says, I want to prioritize the women in our church. There was something special for her in terms of giving stuff to the household of faith. Amen? So my question to you is, who's your Lydia? Who's your Lydia? Who's that person who's interested in what you believe in, but maybe they're not yet born again? Who's that person who's recently saved and they want you in their home? Who's that person? Maybe they're from a different background. She wasn't from the same background as Paul and his, his mates. Different background. But she says, if I'm a believer now, and if you guys consider me as one, then come to my house. Who do you need to invite? Who do you need to invite? Let's have the next shift. The fourth shift is a shift in what you confront. If we're going to truly proclaim Christ, there has to be a shift in what we confront. Think about the fights that you have. Who are you fighting? Think about the arguments that you have. Which arguments do you have? When you become a believer, there's a shift in the confrontations that you're going to have. Am I going to have confrontations about who cuts in when I'm driving? Who cuts in in front of me? Am I going to have confrontations about who cuts in when it comes to queuing? Or am I going to have the kind of confrontations that Paul the Apostle had? And what were they? Have a look at Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 21. Once when we were going to the place of prayer. They're always going to a place of prayer, if you notice that. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Some people who prophesy, they're actually fortune tellers under the guise of being a pastor. They actually have a spirit by which they foretell or foretell or have words of knowledge. 
is a spirit of divination. And Paul was able to pick it up. It's important to have that discerning gift of discerning of spirits to pick up when it's the true prophetic and when it's divination. Amen? She earned a great deal of money for her owners. There's always a money trail. By fortune-telling, she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. My question to you is, was that accurate? Was what they were saying accurate? It was true, wasn't it? But, was, but, but did she have a spirit that was a contrary spirit, a spirit of divination? So you can have a spirit of divination, but still be saying some things that are true. Can you see that? So sometimes we've got this thing of, but how can it be a spirit of divination? Because what they said was true. The Bible shows us that the false prophetic defiles. Now watch this. She kept this up for many days. Now Paul could have been like, oh, it was fine, but she's saying the truth. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. What annoys you? Are you annoyed by contrary spirits? Or you, are you annoyed just because someone has cut in in front of you in the queue? Can you see that sometimes we are annoyed by trivial things? Finally, Paul became so annoyed and he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing, up, are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What is the love of money stopping you from doing? Because you see, Paul could have respected these guys and thought to himself, hey, this is a money-making thing for them. Let me not mess up their trade. What is the love of money stopping you from doing? Paul confronted that particular spirit and the result was an uproar. Are there certain things God has called you to confront, but you're not confronting them because your concern is that you're going to cause an uproar? And maybe your personality is you like to keep the peace at all costs. I mean, feel that proclaiming Christ sometimes will cause an uproar. Proclaiming Christ sometimes will cause an uproar. But will you still proclaim Christ? Are you going to procrastinate certain things that you need to be confronting? Certain difficult conversations that God has said you need to actually confront this thing. Gideon had to confront stuff in his father's house. He had to deal with the idols there. What is God calling you to confront? Some people are so afraid of people. They'll say, ee, ee, I don't want to bring this up with this person because it's Friday. I don't want to spoil their weekend. Oh, 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 I can't bring this up with this person because they're stressed out right now. Paul, you know what? With things, you have to be wise and wait for the right time. And we rationalize our fear, don't we? We rationalize our fear. What has God called you to confront? The fifth shift that we're going to deal with. There's a shift in what we do. There's a shift in what we do. And specifically, I'm talking about how we respond to situations. 
Do you know how culture is created? One of the ways culture is created somewhere is how leaders respond to a crisis. When everyone else is stressed out, how are you responding? Are you worshipping? What strategy does God give you? You know, sometimes when you're going through a tough time, God will actually give you a strategy. Sometimes he says to us, you know what? Praise will be your weapon this week. Other times he'll say, you know what? Just confessing the word this week will be key for you. Other times he might say, you know what? Just being silent with those people and not talking to them is key for you. Sometimes he'll get you into a place of servant warfare. What is servant warfare? Where literally you will serve. And you'll say, you know what? There's such a strong spirit of pride in that environment. I want you to come with the opposite spirit. Come in humility. God gives you different strategies for different situations. Some of you are in very tough workplace situations right now. What strategy is God giving you? And what I find amazing is Paul and Silas, there they are in prison. And look what it says. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 22 to 28, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now most of us, how will we respond to that situation? We get angry with God. I know people today, there's some people who wanted to get married, they didn't get married and now they're offended with God. There are other people, they wanted a particular job, they didn't get it, now they're offended with God. But isn't it amazing? Paul is obeying Jesus, he's preaching the gospel, he gets flogged, he gets put into prison. Remember, he had been obedient to, to the Lord coming here. He felt he was spirit-led when he did so. Did he get offended with Jesus? He already knew that if you're a Christian, you're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience difficult times. He already knew the teachings of Jesus. Jesus had said what? Pray for those who hurt you. Do good to those who persecute you. That word pray for those who hurt you, you find that in Matthew 5, 43 to 47, by the way. When it says pray for those who hurt you, in some translations it actually says pray for those who despitefully use you. My question is, what are you doing where you've been wounded? Can you see that when you become a Christian, there's a shift in your response? Other people who are offended now badmouth those very people that hurt them. What does Paul do? It says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They didn't stop praising Make a decision that despite what anyone says to you, what anyone does to you, flogging, beating, being put in prison. Do you know that when someone judges you, it's like they're putting you in prison. Do you know that? Do you know that when someone discriminates against you, that's like putting you in prison. In fact, if you study this word, I don't know if there are any lawyers around, but if you study the word prejudice, it comes from two words. It's pray and judicium. Pray means in advance, and judicium literally means to send to prison. It's basically sending someone to prison without trial. And we do that mentally with people, don't we? If I've got prejudice towards you, I will judge you before giving you a fair trial, before finding out the evidence or the facts. So this happened physically to Paul, and yet him and Silas were praising God and singing hymns. And you know what I've always found amazing about this passage? 
It says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And the other prisoners were listening to them. In other words, they were not doing it silently. Most of us, when we praise the Lord, we're silent about it. Ah, people will be offended. Ah, if I praise God, you know, people, they might think I'm Bible bashing. No, you're praising God. That's who you're giving the glory to. You're not saying, hey, I was really lucky to get that. No, you're saying, I believe it was God and his gracious gift to me that I got that. Amen? Amen. When they were praising, that was their form of proclaiming Christ. You can proclaim Christ in song. Amen? You can proclaim Christ through poetry. You can proclaim Christ in various other ways, not necessarily preaching directly to someone. And it says the prisoners were listening to them. You know why this is a powerful testimony? Because we all know the story, right? Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Very often, praise will be your weapon. You see? And it's great when people know that you've been using praise as a weapon as a strategy, because they'll give God the glory. Those prisoners could not have said, ah, it was just, uh, it, it was just uh, fortuitous. They were listening to these guys praising, and then suddenly they see this happening. They knew this was a supernatural thing, and they knew that it was linked to the praise. Amen? Amen. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Praise and prayer, regardless of the circumstances. I want to encourage you. What has stopped you to praise? What has stopped you from prayer? Don't let anything stop you. Don't let anyone stop you. Make a decision that even though the government, even though home affairs is doing this and this and this to us, happens as foreigners very often, right? Even though my mom said this, even though my dad rejected me in this particular way, make sure you don't stop praising and giving thanks to God and praying. Amen? There's a shift in what we do. There's a shift in how we respond to situations. It might have seemed foolish when they were doing it. It might have seemed like it was bad press for the gospel. That, ah, these Christians, look, they're still praising their God, but their God has allowed them to be in prison. I find it interesting, it seems to me, that the prisoners respected Paul and Silas. They were fascinated by these guys, like, huh? You're still singing hymns, but you've just been flogged unfairly. At least we are murderers. We have done horrible stuff. We stole we deserve to be in prison. You guys are preaching your gospel, but you're still praising your God. I just think it's amazing. What has shifted in what you do? What has shifted in how you respond to situations? In the workplace, do you say the same stuff that unsaved people say? Do you have the same gripes as the unsaved people? Or do you remember that the spirit of Jesus is in you? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Then finally, shift number six. There's a shift in power. There's a shift in power. We cannot proclaim Christ without the power. What I find amazing is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 
says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, therefore, go and make disciples. You cannot make disciples if you're not going to walk in that exousia. That's one of the Greek words for authority. He's called us to walk in authority. This is a massive shift. And what I've seen with a lot of believers is they don't walk in that authority. Now, there are two dimensions to the authority that I want to talk about. The one dimension of authority is the believer's authority that we've all got, where we can cast out demons in the name of Jesus. That's the believer's authority, and we've got access to it. But there's also what we call spiritual authority, which is authority and legal right and influence that God gives you in a region. You know, there's some people who go to a particular town and they just cough and demons flee. And very often it's because they've sacrificed for that region. They've laid down their life. They've spent years in prayer for that region. And God says, I'm going to raise you to a high level in the spirit realm, in this industry, in this particular region. Can you see it's not exactly the same as the believer's authority? That's why when we advise people in business, we actually say to people, never forsake your root. Never forsake your root. Because I can see that very often people have gained authority and been raised up and been promoted spiritually in that industry. And sometimes they just give up on it and start something else. That's fine. Because we need to have multiple sources of income very often. But the mistake we often make is we forsake our root. The very thing that God has given us, influence, legal authority in a region for. Is everyone following? All right? And one of the things that shifts is that. It shifts when we proclaim in Christ. I can tell you story after story after story. Look what happened to Paul. It says in Acts chapter 16, verse 29 to 37, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the very guy who had locked them up. And he's now coming and saying, guys, what must I do to be saved? I've seen this happening. A story I've been telling lately is a time when I was working with one of the banks and one of the leaders in that particular bank was leading a particular team. And she said, Paul, I'm not the leader in this particular meeting. You run it how you want to run it. It was a team intervention I was doing. I said, cool. Now, this person was an atheist. This person was an atheist. I went into that room before anyone else was there. I gave the meeting over to the Lord. And I said, Lord, may your Holy Spirit be the dominant anointing in this meeting. At a certain point, we, bro we, we broke up into groups and we had to come up with ideas for the team. And I overheard her sharing with the person she had partnered with. And she kept saying, you guys need to start a prayer meeting. And she said, a family that prays together stays together. This is an atheist. And then what happened was when she was now giving feedback to the rest of the group, she kept re reinforcing that particular point. She says, I think you guys need to have a prayer meeting. It will bring you together. Afterwards, I asked the Lord, I said, this person is an atheist, Lord. Why were they suggesting that this team prays together? He said, my Holy Spirit was the dominant authority and influence in that meeting. Are you following me? There are times when you can do that. There are times when you can go into an environment and you bind the working 
of any other strategy and you say, Jesus, only your plan will be established in this particular meeting. But you can only do that when you know your authority. And when people say, you're in charge of the meeting, run it, you walk with that authority. If you don't walk with that authority, you'll see other stuff manifesting. But you can literally bind the other stuff. Amen? I believe that God is taking us to a place in our walk with him where we can be like Daniel. Where it says that Daniel was 10 times better. Daniel and his friends actually were 10 times better than the magicians of Babylon. I believe God is taking us to a place of influence, a place of authority, a place of competence, where it will be easy for us to proclaim Christ because we understand these six shifts. Please say them back to me. What is the first shift? Shift in citizenship. What is the second shift? Shift in assignment. What is the third shift? Shift in association. What is the fourth shift? Shift in what you confront. What is the fifth shift? Shift in what we do, how we respond. Okay, he gives us strategies for how we're going to respond. And what is the sixth shift? Shift in power. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Pastor, you know what? I want you to pray with me because, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I love Jesus. But I know I haven't walked in the fullness of my citizenship. I don't even know all these great and precious promises you guys always talk about. And I want to start on a journey where I maximize my full rights as a believer. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to go to that new dimension of walking in these shifts. Just stand where you are and I want to, I want to pray with us. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for what you are doing in our midst. We decree over these people and over this church that we will not live as if we are unsaved, but we will live according to the Zoe, the God kind of life in us, that we will walk in the authority that you've called us to walk in. Father, I thank you even for this precious couple as they've been, as they're responding to this. I thank you for a new dimension in their walk with you. I thank you for new heights in their relationship with Jesus. I thank you for transformation, Lord, from the inside out. Lord, you've taken them on a journey and he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I thank you, God, that you're completing that work. In Jesus' mighty name, I decree that all the better things associated with salvation are their portion. Help them on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you guys for coming. I want to encourage us, please, Ignite on Friday night. So powerful. And the thing about Ignite is you have to be present to win, right? If you haven't been there yet. You have to be present to win. I encourage you to please come to Ignite on Friday night, 7 p.m. Don't confuse it with 7.30. I know that in Centurion it was 7.30. Here it's 7 p.m., all right? 
And then, of course, Wednesday, we've got the small group. If you want to be on the WhatsApp group, it's called Josie Fridays. That's where most of the people are on that group. And often we send messages there and we pass on photos and that kind of thing. Just please um, let, uh, let Saw know at the end of the service. Just give him your details if he hasn't got them. And then he'll add you onto that particular group. Um, thank you so much. Let's practice doing life deeply with each other. We've got some nice eats. That's the nice thing about this church, you know. I could have a very light breakfast, very, very light breakfast, because I knew I was like, ah, don't worry, Paul, you don't have to eat much because you're going to Joe Bank. There's food there after the service. So um, let's enjoy that. Let's get to know each other. God bless you.